Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. And that's Carol Fran there in a song called The Great Pretender and uh, that by way of introducing our guest tonight who is, uh, I'm not saying he's a pretender but he's an actor and he's picking all the tunes tonight. Aaron Monaghan is with me in studio. Aaron, good to have you here. Thanks for having me, John. I've I've wanted to get you in here for a long time because um, I had no idea idea what kind of music you were into but I knew that you listened to the show. I did, yeah. But I've completely misjudged you. You really have. <laughs> I really have. I really have. It's not I don't know whether you're here, you know, as bold as brass or you're here to get a lot of stuff off your chest. I don't know, but I'm looking down the list here and we're in for it's a bit of an adventure. some stuff off my chest, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I, I probably listened to your show for an education. Um, <laughs> it's I, I, obviously it's, having it's very little no effect. effect <laughs> so um, before we get into your first choice, um, you're from Cavan, right? I am. Or Cavan. Cavan. Whereabouts in Cavan? Cavan Town. Right. And, yeah. And what, I, mean, I was saying this to you before we started the, the programme there, my experience of Cavan Town was literally, it was a, somewhere where the bus stopped for a while and you'd get out and you got your crisps and your sandwiches. That's right, yeah. Um, what, what sort of a town was Cavan Town when you were growing up in it? Um, it was a tiny town. I mean, uh, it, it had a barracks. Um, so it kind of... Uh, brought a lot of obviously soldiers from the south of the country in Um, a lot of my mum's friends my sisters my mum's sisters would have married soldiers and stuff like that so hearing a voice from Limerick or Cork was exotic Um, it's uh, it's, I think Cavan it's it's surrounded by these drumlins so it feels like it's down in a hollow you're looking at you're not even looking at a mountain you're looking at big hills all the time but it's a really really tiny town um my parents were born and bred there, and so you knew everybody. I couldn't walk down the street, um, like I'd be four years old, and some strange man's coming up to you and saying, "Oh, young Monaghan." Yeah. Um, That's not easy. That it's not. No, there's no. There's very little you can do in a town <laughs> like that. Very little you can get away with. Yeah. And what about? I mean, no, we set aside the stereotype about Cavan people and money and all that. Leave that aside. But what about the notion that a place like Cavan, and not just Cavan, but a few counties around there, are quiet? Easy going, mm. almost lethargic. Yeah, is there any mileage in that notion? Oh, without a doubt. If you yeah. if you listen to the way we speak, um, there's certainly kind of no hurry to say no. Get through sentences, and as Tommy Tiernan says, you hold on to the vowels for as long as you can. Um, they say very little as well. I often kind of wonder. I found when I went to college that I, I wasn't. I didn't have a very big vocabulary. And I, I kind of wondered when I think back, we tend to swear a lot because um, I think I think the use of profanity is is a good way of uh, it's instead of using uh, a bigger vocabulary, you can yeah. use profanity and say less. It was that kind of you know growing up in an era of saying nothing. And it fills in the silences. It really does, and we're comfortable with silences down there. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, I used to notice at that bus stop I'm talking about, we had you know the in the skill in Dublin bus, you'd stop there. And some, uh, like an inspector or another bus driver, would get on and have a conversation with the bus driver. Mm. And it might they might as well have been talking in some bizarre code. Because really? no, nothing much was said. 
Oh, yes, it was yeah, like, yeah. You hear about um, your man. Uh, shocking, mm, eh? Shocking. Yeah. Terrible. Well, that's, that's what and that, this would go on for 20 it? minutes, oh, you know, with nothing yeah. actually, not, neither of them actually saying anything that involved facts or information. That's right, yeah. Or you see fellas looking over a ditch or over a hedge, kind of. <laughs> um, it's the winking language, uh, wink and elbow language of the light that Kavanaugh yeah. talks about. Yeah. Well, it's still very much alive and well. I, 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 had, I worked in a pub when I was um, in my teens, late teens, and there was, uh, it was an uncle of mine and his best friend. Uh, they were as close as close could be. Yeah. And they drank every Sunday night and they could drink. They never spoke a word to each other. Like, but they, they went out, you know, they'd have a, a block of ice cream to kind of to line the bellies uh, every <laughs> every Sunday. But I'd sit at the end, they'd sit at the end of the bar, stand at the end of the bar, like, and kind of mirror opposites of each other, one standing on one foot and the other one crossed. And uh, the two elbows at the end of the bar and not speak a word to each other for the entire time. Um, is it any wonder at the end of the night? Is it any wonder you end up doing Beckett and such like? Oh, there you go. It's like yeah. falling off a log for you. Yeah, isn't pretty it? much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that way. Yeah, but I suppose yeah, it's it's, it's in the DNA certainly. Yeah, well, we 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 we'll come to all that as the night goes sure. on. So um, Aaron Monaghan is with me tonight, one of our very finest actors, and, and much more. And he's picking all the music. And your first choice. I'll pick one. <laughs> your first choice on the list here is Trisha Yearwood. It is, yeah. Now that's now. I'm not going to say anything, right? Because I love country music. Mm-hmm. I do love country music. Mm-hmm. But there's a sort of a separate parallel universe of country music in which I might put Trisha Yearwood, which okay. is which what is would not that be? well, it's kind of country rock mainstream. Yeah, hats, Fairly guys, poppy. I think, I think, yeah. There's certainly, there's certainly that. I think. I don't know if Trisha Yearwood would be part of the hat. Well, I'm softening people up because there's worse to come. There's, <laughs> we get there. We'll In fact, I think there. she married him. Um, yes, yes, she did. Yeah, I think I think that's we, uh, you, you'll probably notice a theme as the evening goes on. All right. Um, a lot of a lot of my picks would come from um, a certain uh, hat wearing country gentleman, um, but I got introduced to Trisha Yearwood's music as a result of listening to uh, said gentleman. Which we'll get to. Um, I just love her voice. I think she's an extraordinary singer. And this is called A Lover Is Forever. First choice from Erin Monaghan, Trisha Yearwood. Tell you what, Erin, there's not much wrong with that. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah, Trisha Yearwood there, which is uh, Erin Monaghan's first choice tonight. He's picking all the tracks, I'm delighted to say. A Lover Is Forever, the name of the song. So, Erin, we talked about you growing up in, in Cavan and the sort of a place that Cavan was. I presume it hasn't changed a whole lot, actually. No, it's gotten much bigger. Yeah. Um, I suppose like all Irish towns, uh, uh, it's become a bit more diverse. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still the same place. I still walk down the street and I'm still young Monaghan. And would it be badly affected by the bypass? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think, um, yeah, we, we got this bypass about 20 years ago and we thought that was the end of it, but it's, it's turned into a really good thing. It just means you can get, you can get around it, but I mean, it's, yeah. uh, no, I don't think so at all. It's, it's doubled in size as far as I can see. Um, the one thing that has changed for, uh, for my money is that it's a place where arts thrives. Mm. Um, it just wasn't there for me as a teenager at all. Um, there was the cinema. Mm. which closed when I was about 15 and didn't open again until I was about 18. Um, but there was kind of, to my memory, maybe somebody would argue differently, but to my memory there was very little culturally happening. Um, and in the last 10 years that's just turned around. You have people like 
Lisa O'Neill coming out of there mm. and her sister Jackie who's an artist or Philip Doherty who's running the Gonzo Theatre and it's extraordinary. Um, there were a couple of bands back then too. Well, I mean, there were show bands and so on, but I remember a band called The Fireflies. You remember that? I remember The Fireflies, yeah, yeah Paul Cox. And yeah, and then of course The Stripes. That's right. A great band. Yeah. Um, but Live and Dread, the theatre company, Yeah. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but you started that in Cavan. Yeah, that's right. Um, how how sort of rash a move was it to start a theatre company in Cavan at that point, do you think? I think initially we... We probably thought it was a really stupid move. Mm. Um, it, it kind of started accidentally when um, I, I left college, I'd finished college, and my, my dad had gotten quite sick. Um, he, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I ended up, right as I graduated, coming home mm. to help look after him and to spend time with him. You were only, what, 22 or I something? Was, yeah, this, 20, just, just yeah. 22, actually, yeah. And... Um, I kind of find myself kind of going, right, I've, I've nothing to do. Right when my career is supposed to start, it, it was already stopped. Uh, and another guy who was an actor at the time doing quite well uh, in England, Park McIntyre, mm. he was home because his brother had gotten sick as well. So he, we, we both found ourselves stuck in Gavin. And there was a, a woman who had opened the, well, she was running the Rammer Theatre in Virginia. And she literally grabbed the two of us by the scruff of the neck and said, put, put something on, put mm. stuff on and form a company. So we kind of hemmed and hawed for about a year and it took us about a year to do that. And I think what we discovered was that all these regional theatres that were funded by the Arts Council had very little product, had very little touring product. And we discovered that we could, you know, make plays uh, to, you know, um, bring to these venues. And I suppose out of that, we kind of found this passion in making plays about Cavan for Cavan people. I started working in, shortly after that... A commercial working, enterprise, obviously. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Well, you know, Arts <laughs> Council funded enterprise, hopefully, non-profit making enterprise. Yeah. But um, uh, I started working... But in seriously, though, you wanted to make Cavan plays for Cavan people. Very much so, yeah. yeah. And, and that became that became a kind of a serious yeah. statement for us and, and a, a big mission for us. So I was when I was started working in the Abbey, I was very fortunate. Pretty much every Saturday matinee, I'd walk into the foyer and there'd be people from Cavan coming up to see the shows. And I kind of went, these people shouldn't have to travel to see theatre. Mm. So we kind of became quite dogged and quite passionate about delivering plays. And then Pat McCabe or Michael Harding comes along and starts wanting to work with you or your heroes that, like Don Witcherly or Andrew Bennett, you know, actors that you love and admire, mm. who you can start calling friends, they start wanting to work with you. So it kind of became a, a, a dream come true that we never kind of quite believed in when we started. And even though some of the, the writers, the writers you mentioned, aren't from Cavan, mm. important all the same, and it was for me too in Fermanagh, which means the same part of the world. That's right. That there were people like Pat McCabe and so on. I mean, he was, he was Monaghan, but you know, right, it's yeah. it's the same kind of planet, really. Yeah, it's the same language. It's the same people. Um, I was a huge fan of Pat growing up. You mm. know, reading the Butcher Boy. Oh yeah. When I was fourteen, like blew the back of my head off. Mm. And there's party kind of going. I didn't know people like me existed and could be written about. Yeah. Um, and you know that that it would become a successful novel or something like that. But um. Yeah, when you discover that, like people that speak your language and mm. um, think the same things that you think can can make great art, that that was kind of it's a bit of a revelation. Uh, okay, next music choice is what? 
Pick one. What's no, next on the go, list? No, we go with the list. Yeah. We go with the list. Um, can I stay? Rayla Montaigne. Um, I think he's one of the semi-cool ones on the list. <laughs> I kind of got into him when he was uh, when I was in my twenties and touring the country and um, yeah, doing a lot of tours and spending late nights with fellow actors who, uh, yeah, I know. I know who introduced me to Ray. It was it was a, a, a friend of mine who was quite drunkenly singing uh, a Rayla Montaigne song, and I went. Who's that? And I just fell in love with him. Of course, he, he had that big um, his trouble. That was the one that launched him. But uh, this was off the second album, and uh, I, I just love it. I think it's kind of cute. Can I stay? And Aaron Monaghan with me tonight in studio, picking all the tracks, and that's Le Ray LaMontagne and Can I Stay? Aaron, you're doing all right, actually. So far, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not for me to judge. I invite you in. You bring what you bring. Were you censored? No. You bring what you want. Thank you. Uh, we'll see where it goes. Mm. We'll see where it goes. It's getting there. But uh, he's well down the list for a while yet. <laughs> so, um, becoming an actor. Yeah. Now this 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 question applies, and it's always it's always interesting. I think for people listening whether I'm talking to a musician or, or a fashion designer or a, someone who ends up doing a job like yourself, which is a bit out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, uh, how do you get to that point? What do you have to do or what kind of psychological leap do you have to take? I've been asked this a lot and it's very hard to kind of describe in a credible way how alien the concept of being an actor, an artist, a writer, yeah. anything was to me growing up, because it was certainly not my family. I genuinely thought up until I was about 18 that if you wanted to be an actor, your parents had to be one. I thought they came from somewhere else. Yeah. I thought they came from America or England. I thought they were just a different class of people. Yeah. Um, and if not from one of those places, some kind of bohemian, strange family. Absolutely. That yeah. didn't go to the same school as you and weren't going to Mass yeah. on Sunday. I didn't realise South Dublin existed, but that's where I that's where I thought they came from. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um and I'd see obviously I'd see Glen Rowe, which my dad was a huge fan of and stuff like that. But they just they they didn't occupy the same space as me. Mm. I didn't know you could train to mm. be one. I just thought you were born one. I genuinely yeah. did. Yeah. Um and so like my whole uh, reason of being when I was a kid was to be an architect. I loved it. I loved yeah. drawing houses. I loved construction studies. I loved technical graphics. And my head just went to a, a very calm place, drawing straight lines and looking at angles. And that was the life for me. Um, I, and so all your your whole time through school, primary school, secondary school, all the rest of it, no acting at all? Nothing. No. Nothing? Not no, even we, a pantomime or a school uh, play? No, or? sorry, I'll tell a slight lie. Um, I, I did... Uh, youth drama when I was about 16 right. just around the time I did my uh, junior search and um, but that was an hour every Friday yeah. um, and that was a mess it's something I took very very seriously I loved it um, and we did a few plays here and there but the idea of being able to take that into a career or adulthood was mm. it was just something I mean it might as well have been karate or some other oh, absolutely thing. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it certainly wasn't for me I did mm. I just didn't know it, it, yeah I, I ended up I told this story a thousand times in short um, the, when doing youth drama there was a, a, a theatre company that came round to use us as guinea pigs to write about youth culture I suppose or to look at that perspective on things in a border town and um, they did some workshops with us and then they came back and they had written the play and they 
uh, had written a part for me in it. Um, a part of that was economics, actually. Even when I think about it now, it was like that they, they had virtually no money to do it. Mm. So they wondered, could they get two child actors or two you know youth drama people in and pay them 50 quid a week mm. to, to do that? Um, so this all happened within a week of me turning 18, getting my place in college to do architecture, um, getting my leave insert results. The arts officer in Cavan said, they've written this play for you and they want you to do it for six months. And I thought that'd be great to be able to tell my grandkids that I was once in a professional mm -hmm. production with professional actors. And then I'll go back and do drama or I'll go back and do architecture. And um, so I did that for six months. And during the course of that, I discovered that you could train to be an actor. Um, I became quite inspired by the professional actors that I was working with. And the woman who went on, Mary Hanley, uh, who went on to run the rammer and get me and Park McIntyre together and banged our heads and said, start this company. She filled out a, a form for Trinity, the course. She that, actually filled out the form? Pretty much, yeah. Right. She said, sign that. Yeah. And she sent it in. And um, I got the call to audition for Trinity. Still thinking, this is... N neither something I'm going to do or something I'm going to get. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got a call back within the same day to go up and do an interview for it. And I was walking up the stairs uh, to the dance studio in the Beckett Centre. Um, just something happened. I just went, no, this is it. This is what I'm doing. I'd never listened, I'd never listened to any voice inside myself yeah. that kind of seemed in any way certain about anything. But just something, I just felt it. Was that a hard thing to explain at home and explain to your friends? And, you know, did they think, well, you know, you, you want to be an actor instead? Is that is that wise? You know, it's a bit like an often signer for a football club. Yeah, you know? pretty I mean, much. If, it, if it works, brilliant, but the chances yeah. are, you know. I think I was the first one in our family to go to college, so that helped. Yeah. So left I was going to have to do left something. It to you. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. the fact that it was Trinity also helped. Yeah. My mother certainly worried because she was like, you know, Will there be money in it? Will you be yeah. able to get a job? The, as as alien as it was to me to say, I'm going to be an actor, you can imagine yeah. my family. Um, so yeah, it was a hard one to explain. And it's something I didn't kind of come to terms with. Like when I go back home, I still feel very uneasy about talking about the life that I live. Mm. Um, so I, I sort of a, a dichotomy in me grew, certainly was when it was in Trinity. I had to be, when I went home to work in the pub at the weekends, I had to... I do remain very secret about what I did during yeah. the because I just couldn't explain it. It was, um, it was I don't know. It was like it was living on the moon during the week and then going home to work in a pub in Cavan at the weekends. It's a hard one to explain. Yeah. Your next choice, Aaron, is uh, Laura Marling. Yeah, yeah, that's all right too, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. Listen, you're listen. <laughs> do, do your worst. I knock yourself out. I, I was introduced to Laura Marling by a very cool trip, uh, hip, trendy friend, and. Um, yeah, I like this song. It's like a stream of consciousness. I don't know. It's just like she's just spitting the whole thing out. I like it. Laura Marling there and New Romantic. The choice of Aaron Monaghan is with me in studio uh, tonight picking all the tracks. Now, you mentioned going to Trinity to mm. study and this is the Trinity School of Acting. Is that right? Yeah, is the Samuel Beckett Centre. Yeah. Uh, the Samuel Beckett Centre, the beautiful theatre there. That's right, yeah. Wooden building. If you're ever walking through, you can mm. see that. Now, tell me a little bit about that because you, as you said yourself, you didn't think you could train to be an actor. You didn't think yeah. you could be taught to be one. Yeah. How do they, how do they go? Is it, now this is a big question. But how do they go about Working with you, who obviously have some kind of talent to begin with, how does that work? 
Uh, God, I don't know. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's studio based. Um, it was a very rigorous course, uh, very physically based. A lot of dance, a lot of movement, a lot of voice work, um, a lot of text work. We didn't touch plays until the end of the first year. Well, how important, for instance, mm. is dance, say? Because you probably didn't sign up for dance, if you know Absolutely. what I mean, when you went there. Yeah, it was so, the, it was the and, first class I and, did. Yeah. And we were asked to, you know, you're meeting your other 13 fellow students and asked to introduce yourself in, you know, say your name and a thing. I remember the first thing I said was, um, I'm Aaron and I don't dance and I can't dance. And um, we had a, an amazing teacher who, by the end of it, had us had me doing things that were just coming out of my body. Yeah. I don't know how she did that. And did you go go with that in a wholehearted way? Or were you thinking to yourself while all this is going on, just give me a play, come on, I want to get going here. I went with it in a, in a wholehearted way, yeah. but with a huge kind of dose of cynicism. Yeah. Because um, you're looking around, you're doing stuff in, in you know, uh, sense memory training, which is a hard one to explain, but like you're holding an imaginary cup with imaginary coffee with and you're supposed to see imaginary steam coming out of it and you're supposed to feel the imaginary heat um, and I suppose it's supposed to try to provoke a memory or a, an emotion in you it's trying to w- awaken you emotionally or sensorially and I'm looking at this around the room kind of going I don't get this I'm, but I'm looking at all my fellow students who seem to be and I'm kind yeah. of going either they're faking it yeah. or they're doing it and I'm in trouble. So for the first year I felt I was in trouble and I couldn't I couldn't really let myself go and I almost failed first year because of it. I got to the end of the first year and they said, you're passing but you're heading towards a fail and unless you show up, there's nothing we can do for you. So I, I turned up in second year full sure that I was going to be, you know, kicked out yeah. and um, I just went, okay, I will. I can let myself go. And I I, I, I realised that I was inhibiting myself, which yeah. is what they're trying to get you to stop doing. So it took a year um, and I went, well, I'm going to be kicked out anyway. So um, something clicked and second year just turned around for me. And did it take much to overcome in those circumstances, stereotyping again, but the Calvin man in you, you know, I mean, I certainly know growing up in Fermanagh that very few of us, would have been in any way comfortable in that situation of having yeah. to, like, dance. I mean, we'd barely, yeah. we'd barely dance at a dance. Yeah, never mind, right, yeah. Never mind, you know, in front of people and express yourself and stuff like yeah. that. Very, very, uh, holding everything in. Very much so, yeah. Um, and that would, take a, that would take a brave step, actually, to jump out of that. And, and the fear of being laughed at and slagged. Sure, sure, and, yeah. You know, and anybody stuck their head above the parapet was tended to get a slap, you know. Yeah. I think I was more afraid of interacting with people. Um, like I walked into Trinity on the first day and I heard two guys talking about like law on the first, you know, yeah. on, the, on the front steps. And I went, this world is just not for me. Mm. I find it very hard to interact with my classmates and stuff like that. But I think I've always had this like, like luckily just had this click in my head that when I'm working, just something clicks where I stop centering myself. Um and so something like dance, where I kind of, I maybe maybe it was just because you're learning to express yourself for the first time ever, um, which you don't get to do in Cavan a lot, really. Uh, something I just I didn't think about it. So mm. you could call it brave, but I could just call it convenient. In that, um, yeah, I just got interested in doing the work. So in between the work on the breaks, 
I would find it very hard to, I still do find it quite hard to talk to people and to interact with them or talk about the work. Mm. Um, I just want, I'd, I'd feel much more comfortable doing it. Mm. Next choice, Aaron, is uh, James Taylor. When did you first hear James Taylor? Because he's one of those musicians that, you know, even if you're not really into music at all, yeah. he was just always there at a certain time. Yeah, very you know? so. yeah. Um James Taylor, about I think was about 16 years old and... You know that that thing about the Desert Island Discs thing and you have to narrow it down to five? I I couldn't, but I know that his greatest hits album, the white one, um, is is one that yeah. I take, which this song isn't on. Um, we, we'll come back to the... We'll come back to the man in the hat, but he was uh, a huge influence. James said it was a huge influence on him. So I started kind of going, who is this guy? And started listening to him. Um, I think he's just extraordinary. They say that the reason white men have no soul is because God gave it all to James Taylor. Um, <laughs> this is off Sweet Baby James. I, I love that there's a gospel feel of it. Yeah. It kind of changes halfway through. I just love the song. Lo and behold, from James Taylor, the choice of Aaron Monaghan is with me in studio tonight picking all the music. Aaron, we were talking about Trinity there and mm. the way that, you know, the, the first year was all breaking you down in a way and building you up That's I it. guess at the same time um, when did you actually start to get to to act when did they give you a script and say right let's let's hear you do this second year really yeah yeah started on um, Chekhov and Shakespeare and um, and even within that it was a very ensemble thing you weren't allowed to act on your own right um, no it was it was all a big group thing you were you were doing uh, your scene studies as a group and then it was in third year they started kind of putting you into shows and showing you what it was like to yeah. be a professional theatre yeah. actor yeah. Um, and it was a really really slow slow process and did you benefit from that do you think very much that, so, yeah. that's a good way to do it yeah absolutely because you're not you're not out there trying to well I suppose you're it slows you down first of all you yeah. know and, and makes you discover who you are and what you're good at like I never thought in my life that I'd be doing a handstand or anything like that yeah. or that I'd be able to read a poem like The Wasteland and kind of half get it or something yeah. like that um, so yeah and I'd say anybody you know who would who would uh, you know in danger of being a prima donna would be would be a good thing that they'd be stopped in their tracks a bit early very on much that so, they weren't yeah. they, they didn't want to just uh, be the star yeah. attraction on day one yeah very much so take like, the window it, it, was, it was rigorous honestly yeah. they, they because we used to look out on the on the academic students doing two or three hours work a day. We we were in from nine until seven every day, up wow. on our feet, uh, five days a week. Um, yeah, it was tough. Going. That's tough. Now, were you attending plays in Dublin all the time yeah. while in the middle of and that? That that must that must be hugely important to do that. You yeah, know, to actually see things being done. That's right. Yeah, I don't I don't get seen a play until it was maybe sixteen, seventeen. Like going to the the Tivoli to see like your leaving search Othello or yeah. Macbeth or whatever it was. Um, yeah, the Abbey were very good to us at the time. They used to let us go and see a, a matinee for free because we were um, students. So I, I saw everything. So that's where I was kind of like really taken with Tom Murphy plays or yeah. Brian Friel plays. You're really getting your education there, watching actors like uh, Don Witcherly, Kathy Belton, all these great act, Declan Conlon, people like that. 
and kind of hoping that one day you might get to meet them, let alone work with them. See, they, these are great actors, but it shows the difference between our age, because I think they're young actors, you know? I, I, think, I, I still <laughs> think they they're... Are. I still kind of think they're starting out, do you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we're coming to that now. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to realise that I'm the age they were when I was starting out. Yeah. And I yeah. still think I'm a young fella. Which yeah. I yeah. Um, no, I still think I'm a young fella, and you're getting young people come up to me now looking at you in the same way that I would have looked at people like Don or Declan. Yeah. Uh, it's a very... It's, it's called getting old. Experience. That's what that is. Unfortunately, yeah. Do you remember, you know, you mentioned Tom Murphy and Freeland, you know, do you remember any particular productions that, that, that really blew your mind? Because I always, and I've said this enough times on the radio before talking to guests, but I always have the sense that theatre, when it works, is magnificent. Yeah. Doesn't work all that often. Yes. Do you know, yeah. to, to, at least to the extent that it can, you yeah. know that those special moments are rare enough and people often talk about particular plays. Yes. And they might only be able to name two or three, you know, That's where right, it yeah, really happened. Well, yeah. Was there any, what were the mind-blowing ones for you, do you the, think? The one, I think, I always find this with theatre, like I try to describe why it's so important. And for me, it's, you, you walk in the door and you sit down and you witness something that stirs something inside you that has changed you irrevocably. And I often find that if I'm not the same person walking out as I was walking in. And that can be a, quite a frightening experience. Yeah. Uh, and the first time I really, truly remembering, remember that happening was seeing A Whistle in the Dark when they did the the retrospective of Tom Murphy. This was in the Abbey? Yeah, in yeah. the Abbey. I think it was I, 2000. Right? I no, saw that, yeah. 2000. And um, again, it was that thing of I didn't know theatre could be about me. Yeah, you know, not that my family was killing each other, yeah. or like that, but like, I, I kind of recognised myself. I recognised my brothers, my family. I recognised mm. uh, my neighbours, uh, extended family, the people I interacted with a lot of the time up on that stage, and all their frustrations and their uh, inabilities and their inarticulateness. And um, I, I remember kind of going, I was quite shaken by it. I think, I think. Tom Murphy, the way of writing, that you know, he he could understand that frustration, mm. particularly of coming from you know a lack of education, and uh, you know that's what I recognised and all that. And he, you know, we did a whistle in the dark then, what was it three or four years ago? So it would have been, I don't know, fifteen years later, and getting to play Harry, yeah. and it was he was talking about writing the play, and it would have been fifty years previous that he'd written it, yeah. and um, when he talked about where the play came from, you could still see the rage and the injustice still present 50 years later. I mean, um, th and that was a huge insight into it. Kind of, So it wasn't about anger. It wasn't about violence. Um, it wasn't even about rage. It was about injustice. And that was a key in. Mm. And it was also about hate yeah. as well. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to live up to that. I, mean, I remember you talking about, like, you know, uh, him riding through the night with his feet up on, on the range and um, discovering that his he, his teeth had been ground to a powder because he was grinding them and that his the heels of his of his feet were kind of burned and he hadn't noticed because of what he was putting into it. You know, um, that's an extraordinary thing to have to live up to. But it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it puts it in context for you kind of go, I have to, I have to deliver on this. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a big responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. Next choice. Mm. 
We're, we're, we're getting there now. We're nearly there. We're just, we're just, we, we, we. Sin, Sin Wagon is a song by Dixie, Dixie Chicks. Dixie Chicks, yeah. That we all love and admire because they stuck their neck out. They did, yeah. They really they put did. put their head above the, above the parapet. Yeah. Yeah. And they got a lot of stick. They did, yeah. Um, I think unfairly. But it, like, like, you know, they went off to work with Rick Rubin then after yeah. that and came back with yeah. extraordinary stuff. Um, I, you wonder if it's down to Rick Rubin or if it's down to them, you know. They won a Grammy then after that. Well, I think he just took them out of the out of the system. Yeah, you know, out of the production line. Maybe so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they're great musicians. They're great extraordinary. Singers, yeah. yeah, I think what I love about this, I mean, you know, you could pick any Dixie Chick song. I just love the spunk behind this, and I, I love um, the musicians. Yeah, they're they're all they're playing these. I can't believe you can play instruments this live, uh, this fast. Um, and you know they're all mothers. I saw them live at the point a couple of years ago, and I think one of them had just had a baby like three weeks previous, and they're rocking out um, the uh, point. I couldn't believe it. You know. Alrighty, Dixie Chicks, um, Sin Wagon. Aaron Monaghan is with me in studio tonight. Aaron's picking all the tracks, and that was uh, Dixie Chicks, Sin Wagon. So let's let's talk a bit now because it might be be starting to become evident now uh -huh. that you have a certain predilection for the the country and western music. Correct. Yeah. Both kinds. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, and I kind of I kind of like this because you are not, as a lot of people do, reinventing your musical history. You, no, no. You were a full on, and possibly still are country music fanatic yeah very much so yeah, yeah. and um, I'm not asking you to justify that because I love country music myself <laughs> but you are you've gone to, you're, you're talking about Garth Brooks Trisha Yearwood Dixie Chicks that yeah. kind of, that that mainstream I guess very it's called so, yeah. country yeah. music so where'd you get that from um, I suppose it was always in the house uh, like yeah my mum would have been listening to it a lot my dad would have been listening to it a lot and like I grew up in the eighties. That's that's where Irish country music like you know, I grew up listening to a lot of Irish folk music and Irish country music. Um I don't know anybody in Cavan who didn't listen to country music. Yeah. Whether it was my uncle listening to Marty Robbins and Jim Reeves and stuff like that, they would have been my earliest yeah. memories. I think I think, I think basically every house in Ireland listened to Marty Robbins and Jim Reeves. Absolutely, really, yeah. You know? Yeah. And you know, old chefs. Slim stuff like that. Slim Whitman. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah all, all those people. Um and um Hank Williams, you know, growing up listening to all that stuff. Um, and my mum was a big kind of, you know, she she looked after all of us kids. So my my early memories would have been like, you know, steam in the kitchen and loads of ironing and her looking out the window listening to like Tammy Wynette and Dolly Parton yeah. and uh, people like that. Uh, I don't know, it, it, it kind of, it's still there. It's still very much in Cavan. It's still very much in that... Um, Midlands area, if, but if, you see all the stuff you mention, yeah. Uh, and I know cool is not important when yeah. it comes to these things, but all those people you mentioned are cool. I mean, Hank Williams is recognised as you know perhaps the greatest songwriter there's there's ever been, and yeah. and it's hard to argue that. Yeah, Dolly Parton for all the 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 way she presents herself and acts like you know the the blonde uh -huh. wig and all the rest of it is another of the greatest songwriters, Absolutely, you know, and a hugely yeah. talented you know musician and singer. There's no yeah. doubt about that. But I find myself growing up being very drawn to Merle Haggard, George Jones, Willie Nelson, Hank Williams, uh -huh. those kinds of people, right? Now, I don't know whether that was me looking for the cool stuff deliberately 
Yeah. But you you are you're devoted to Garth Brooks and that branch. Yeah. Now Garth Brooks, of course, is known as the anti Hank. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um I suppose, well, you see I grew up in the era of Garth Brooks. I mean I, I remember growing up uh, like fourteen. He came to Ireland when I was fourteen and uh people I know going to you know, see him, friends in low places all over the place. Yeah. And you're you're watching, you know, music videos, you're watching him in concert and I kinda of going, Who the hell is this guy literally bursting onto the stage? And it's more like a rock concert than it is a, you know, a country concert. Um I've always loved the honesty of country music lyrics. I love the simplicity as well of, you know, we'll just listen to the Dixie Chicks there playing the most complicated music. That's very similar to Irish music yeah. as well. It's fiddles and banjos and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but there's a simplicity to it as well and an honesty to it. So, I, you know... Three chords and the truth. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. exactly that. Singing about the dead dog and stuff like yeah. that. But, um, you know, that's that's a simplistic way of looking at it. I suppose my friends would have been into Oasis and Blur and I just couldn't understand how, you know, walking down the hall faster than a cannonball... I, I don't get that lyric. So did you avoid all that world completely? Everything, yeah, I really did. Yeah. So you're growing up in the 80s and your pals are listening to Oasis and Blur and, you know, Britpop and Pulp and whatever was in Top yeah. of the Pops and you were ignoring that? I was completely ignoring it, yeah. I suppose that, like, um, I won't say I had a conservative upbringing because it was anything but, but I'd certainly been, I was the last of six kids at this point um, and my mum... Like, she wrapped me up in cotton wool. I wasn't allowed out of her sight. So, you know, if anything that my brothers or sisters did when they were growing up that was, like, bending the rules at all, the first thing was they turned around to me and said, you are not even to think about doing that. Mm. So the idea of, like, smoking or drinking or doing anything cool mm. when I was growing up was just banned. It was just, I was going, well, I'm obviously not going to do that. So when I started, like, you know, 14, 15, my friends had gone out and, you know experimenting with this stuff, I kind of thought they're going to get in trouble for listening to all this, you know, swear word music and stuff yeah. like that and they're smoking. It was a whole culture that grows up around listening to pop music, especially when you're, you know, whatever music you listen to when you're a teenager. It's, it's not just the music, it's, it's the culture. So I I avoided sneaking out at night. I avoided drinking. I avoided smoking. Yeah, but there's plenty, of, the there's plenty of people who do that and yet they catch a glimpse of David Bowie and they just get yeah. seduced out of their world and brought into another one whether they like it or yeah, not. Yeah, I suppose know? part of it is that you, people kind of obsess about these things, you know. I mm. remember the big argument was who were, like it was almost kind of violent. Who do you who who are you? Are you Oasis or Blur? Yeah. And People, anything that people get obsessive about, I just tend to walk away from, you yeah. know, particularly if it's, uh, you know, Leonard Cohen or the Beatles or something like that. All these people I love, I think they're great musicians and amazing songwriters. But anybody who gets obsessive about it, I kind of go, OK, I don't get your obsession, so mm. I'm going to respectfully back away. <laughs> you might be right. I, I just do. I just kind of feel it's, it's an easier life. So, But Garth Brooks had, uh, he, he seemed to be... D- do you know what I mean when I say that I thought he was just another rock act, but he was he was sell, he was selling himself as a country act because that yeah. that you know and, and 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 it worked. People bought that very much so, yeah. So yeah. Pe- people who wouldn't go to see, for the sake of argument, Kiss, or yeah. some other over the top Bon Jovi or something, yeah, that felt felt a lot more comfortable at Garth Brooks gigs. I think so. Yeah, I think I mean, isn't that what country music does? Do it speaks to you know, ordinary people. It does. It speaks to country people. Um, I think he just tapped into that. I remember, I remember hearing him say that you know that there was 
a million miles to go within country music. And the more, like, I did listen to him almost exclusively, literally almost exclusively. Like, when I say that, I was, you know, I was obviously exposed. There was a radio in every room in our house. There was nowhere you couldn't go where somebody wasn't listening to music. So all through my teens, I was listening to my brother's and sister's music as well. Um, but my music exclusively was Garth Brooks' music. But the more I kind of, when I got older, I, dis- I discovered the stuff that he would have listened to. Yeah. Um, and he he a real diverse range of influences, which I also got into, you know. So I would never have, I would have listened to some George Jones and Merle Haggard and stuff growing up. But I think it's because of him and thanks to him that I really got into George Jones and Merle Haggard. Did you keep it to yourself or was that an acceptable kind of an opinion to have among your peers at school? I'm a Garth Brooks fan. In the 90s, it was absolutely acceptable. Yeah. Um, I, I, I went to see him in, I could tell you the date, it was the 18th of May, 97, in Croke Park. Um, I saved for weeks for the tickets. Um, that was cool. That was, that was you know, um, the height of Garth Brooks. I kept it to myself all through, the, all through my 20s and 30s, <laughs> up until today. Um <laughs> I don't listen to him exclusively anymore. I might listen to him once a year. I'll I'll take a day or I'll go into kind of clearing out a load of drawers and shelves in the house and I'll stick him on the headphones and listen listen to just him. And I'll, I'll listen to all of the stuff. But um, And as you get older, do you not find yourself... I'm trying to help you now. Do you, <laughs> as you get older, would you not find yourself more drawn to George Jones yeah. and Merle Haggard 100%. and that kind of stuff? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I see. I see now what what he was drawn into. Like this is a guy who was obsessed with Billy Joel and yeah. Elton John. Nothing wrong with guys. any of that. Absolutely, no. yeah. And I can see that. Like I suppose the older I get, the more I see that in his music. You know, and like you know, I find it hard to narrow down. Like I could do a show on Garth Brooks if you wanted, but like, well, trying to pick well, we'll 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 phone you about that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let. Why don't we play him now and get it done? Okay. What, what what song have you chosen and why? I picked, I don't know, I just like this song. Like, when I was listening to him, I'd be, you know, either wandering around the fields or running around in my kitchen. Um, the odd time you had a, a, a kitchen to yourself in our house. I love this song. It's off the In Pieces album. It's kind of, that was the big iconic one. It was the big red and black shirt. I'm and, starting to love this now. You're so serious about it. It's I really brilliant. am, yeah. And yeah. this is, it's a real bluesy one. It's like, you know, like I said, he, he, he kind of, you know that that famous thing before the Beatles did anything, Elvis did everything. Yeah. Garth Brooks did everything. He, he kind of he paid homage to every country star. I think. So I I don't know where this comes from. It's 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 a blues thing. I feel it's a real southern thing. And um, yeah, uh, he had w- w- he had Jim Horn play sax on this. Uh, I think. And after this, we'll we'll take a break because I'm going to need. You're going to need it. <laughs> And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special where we get a guest to come in and pick all the music. And tonight is the actor Aaron Monaghan, who uh, just before the break, if you've just joined us, revealed himself to be possibly the biggest Garth Brooks fan in the country, which is saying something. It really is, because Garth has quite the following. Yeah, guilty. Yeah, but anyway, fair dues to you. Coming in here as bold as brass with a Garth Brooks record. That's <laughs> that done, I apologise, John. 
actually, gotten through it. No, but look, I'm, I'm only messing. I'm, I'm only messing. Now, uh, just to kind of, by way of some sort of change of gear, mm. let's talk about Beckett. Yeah. No, actually, before, no, before we get to that, before we get to when you left Trinity and mm. the, the, the studying and so on, um, when you leave a place like that, do you kind of automatically go into the into the Abbey or somewhere? I mean, is it easy? Do you, do you just accept it straight off because you've done this course? I see I'm the worst person to answer this question. Um, the answer is no. Yeah. It's not easy. But I was incredibly lucky. So, right. So, yeah, it was kind of easy. Um, uh, I ended up doing a play which toured England called Alone Stands. And then I... In the course of that, I ended up auditioning for a show in the Abbey, um, which I ended up getting. And by the time I was kind of teching or previewing that show, I'd ended up auditioning for another show in the Abbey and then another show in the Abbey. So I ended up doing about two years in the Abbey uh, non-stop, which is like unheard of. Yeah. Like that's incredibly, incredibly lucky. Um, and then after that, I ended up going into Druid and working there for like solidly for nearly two years as well. So that's where I did a lot of my real training, a lot yeah. of my, my real work. I so suppose. you would have had what two, four, five, you know, three years at Trinity, right? Yeah, three, three years, yeah. and then two years at the Abbey. Yeah, two years at yeah. three and two is five and two is seven. That's seven years of intensive. Yeah, intensive work. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. working with all the greats and yeah. like I always say the. Um, you know, students coming out of college ask me for advice and I always say, don't speak for the first year, just listen. I think going into the Abbey and like having all those Abbey actors, all the old Abbey school heads telling stories about, you know, T.P. McKenna and Cyril Cusick and I kind of, you know, and not very good ones a lot of the time either, you know, you know, uh, not very glorious ones. Um, but you learn that they've all been there and they've done everything um, and that, I learned very quickly at very little to contribute um, and I had so much to learn. Mm. And I, I guess you're in awe of all those people, really. You know? All of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah They're extraordinary. amount of stories flying around the room. Wow. And if you were if you were having a problem, you know, I don't know, I'm not an actor. I don't know what problems actors have, but, you know, <laughs> in terms of forgetting lines or not being able to deliver some speech properly or you were just nervous or you didn't feel yeah. you were on top of it, would another actor you know, the way it would happen, say, on a football team, take you to one side and say, look, you know, buck up here, you've got it. You know, relax, go out and do your thing. Or, you know, just a bit of a pep talk, actually. Yeah, you know? I think I think a lot of young actors, or I certainly would have been guilty of, as like being over earnest or taking th things too seriously. So, um, oh God, I heard a terrible story. I used, to, I used to warm up a lot, I still do, but I used to like warm up a lot, like, like do like an hour and a half physical acrobatics, handstands, you name it, stretches, yeah. and, and I'd wrap along to Eminem, you know. <laughs> and there's there's a methodology behind it, which I can explain to you, but... Um, no, please do. Well, well I suppose... Because I might take that up myself. Oh, yeah, I suppose, like, um, it's, it's, I suppose it's to banish nerves and to get your head into it. And it's, Like, for me, I kind of go, it's stretching every muscle in your body so that whatever happens, your, 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 your body's ready to do yeah. whatever is necessary to do on stage. And warming up your voice. I'm from Cavan. We mumble a lot. We, mm. you know, so being able to rap along with the same speed and cadence as Eminem is probably useful in terms yeah. of uh, saying lines on stage. But I discovered that it was actually about calming my head and just get it just like this thing of going into work and starting the work and not not thinking. 
That's what I have to do. Mm. I have to be in a place where my head isn't thinking, where it's not thinking about who's in tonight. It's not thinking about the reviews that may be good or bad. Mm. It's not thinking about whether I'll mess up my lines. It's just about getting into a, a place where your head is just kind of um, not present and your body's just reacting. But I would find these other actors, these older actors who've done this like a million times kind of going, why the hell is he putting so much effort into it? And I heard the great story about someone doing a very, very uh, physical and vocal, uh, intensive physical and vocal warm up who, um, I think he won line. <laughs> I don't know who it was. I don't know who the person said it was. Just as well, we'll not, we'll not dwell yeah, on yeah, who let's, it was. Yeah, it could be litigious. Um, God, I mean, can you imagine what he did if he departed at all? You know, so, but that's, you know, it's kind of a very dismissive, you know, remark, but it, it also, it's good to kind of put it in context. It's yeah. still a job, it's and it's only a job, and you can't take it too seriously because, and I've learned that over the years, like I've exhausted myself on many shows and probably not, probably not looked after myself, so you realise that you have to feed the soul as well, and, um, yeah. Well, you mentioned rapping to Eminem, and I notice he's on your list. Mm. Rhyme or reason? Rhyme or reason? Yeah, I I got into Eminem when we were in college doing Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, again, you know, he's he needs a fan of him. What more do you have to say? Um, yeah, it kind of made sense. We were listening to uh, you know doing lots of Shakespeare and hearing the you know the rhyme and the rhythm in it, and um, I had been absolutely dead set against Eminem I couldn't understand him I couldn't understand why he used to swear couldn't understand why he was so angry and then just one of the songs got in my head and it kind of started to make sense in terms of this like the iambic pentameter that we were doing in, in class uh, and that was his second album it was the Marshall Mathers LP and I very slowly started to listen to it and become obsessed with it and learn it backwards and I, I listened to it for months and months and months until I knew it backwards. Um, and and by, by when you say knew it, you could speak it, you could rap this stuff. Oh yeah, yourself. very much yeah, so, yeah. 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 And um, Speak it, yes, that's not the word. Yeah, yeah. Rap, I think, is the word I'm and looking for. You couldn't for. say sing it either, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I'd have to do it under my breath as well. But I'd be doing this on, on the dart in and out from college, you know. And um, But he followed this album up. It was, a, it was a kind of a seminal album for him. He followed this up with the Marshall Mathers LP2. Yeah. And it was kind of a reaction to this first one. And, and again, he'd worked with Rick Rubin on this. There's a theme in all these, I think. Um, and I just love this song. Um, I think I think it's, uh, yeah, it speaks for itself. Okay, okay. Rhyme or Reason, Eminem. That's Eminem. Rhyme or Reason, the choice of uh, Aaron Monaghan, who's with me in studio. I just imagine you backstage rapping that before you go yeah, on. Yeah. Now, what you, you made a good point, though. You said that this was helping you when you're doing your, your, doing your Shakespeare. Because you, yeah. you have to figure out a way of saying it. And I want, to, yeah. I want to talk to you about Shakespeare in particular, because a lot of people listening may have at some glanced up against Shakespeare at some way throughout their lives. Maybe a little bit at school, or maybe seen a play. God knows it might have been a terrible production, or it might have been a good one. You never know. But at least everybody's aware of Shakespeare, and a lot of people are afraid of him. Yeah. Um, now, one of the reasons I was afraid of him is that all I had seen was the RSC and productions like that mm. delivering these words in ways that to me were incomprehensible. I couldn't make head nor tail of them. Right. The first time I ever got Shakespeare was when Irish companies did it. Right, okay. Um, and Druid Shakespeare, of course, have really contributed to that. Yeah. Is there anything in that that... that 
that the English have got it all wrong <laughs> in terms of how they present Shakespeare. They, they, they deliver the lines as if everybody already knows them and there's no need to make them clear. Yeah. Whereas if somebody comes in with a Calvin accent and delivers a language which actually fits perfectly in yes, Calvin that's right, and Fermanagh yeah. and To Monaghan. be or not to be, that's yeah. the question. Perfect. Yeah. Um, there's, no, there's no issues with understanding it all no. of a sudden. Or is that, maybe that's just because I'm from here and not from there. I don't know. I think we're, we know it's very English and it's, it, it sounds English. Um, but I think it sounds, I think it sounds kind of, uh, it sounds Ulster. It sounds Cavan. Absolutely. I you couldn't know, agree more. That's yeah. what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And, think, and apparently that's closer to the way Shakespeare yeah, spoke. Yeah, I've, I've heard this, spoke, yeah, you know. when, you, when you talk about what, what it was like phonetically or the yeah. accents that they would have used, yeah. yeah. Well, look, there's a, there's a lot of plays I could talk to you about because I've seen you in so many things over the years. But just on that, Richard III, for instance, which is the last thing I saw you in, and you were Richard III. Right. Um, I mean, there's so much you could talk about in, in that production. Um, but in terms of the... The idea of doing that one in particular, I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking Trump, I'm thinking right. corruption, I'm thinking yeah. power, I'm thinking people who are, who are, will enable corruption, mm. will go along with it. I'm thinking how the monster can seduce. Yeah. Do you know, all yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. So it was all very, uh, it was all very relevant. Yeah. But, you know, good art tends to turn out to be relevant. That's, that's anyway, the thing, you yeah. know. It's funny, I was thinking about that last week. Um we actually banned the word Trump from the room yeah. in that rehearsal room. And there was no there was no reference made to it or no. anything pointed in no. that direction, but, you know, it was in the air, I yeah. suppose. I think any, I don't know about any piece of art, but certainly theatre, I just get really bored with, I'm always just really wary of trying to do a piece of theatre to make it relevant. Sure. I just think it's dead before it starts. I think the reason we did that was, you know, I, I remember shaking Gary's hand, making a deal with her probably over a few drinks in like 2005 kind of saying that we'd do this play one day and I'd play that part because I'd had well, That's a long time ago a lo- Yeah So no, what, why did a, you have your eye on that one? I don't, uh, I, when I was 12 I saw a documentary of Anthony Sherr doing yeah. it and I remember it was on BBC Two and it just caught my eye and I was flicking through and I kept on flicking back um, and then when I got to college and we were starting to do Shakespeare our voice coach gave us monologues and she gave me a rich the third and i remember kind of going oh my god that was that was the thing that that actor yeah. was doing in that documentary i saw 10 years ago whatever it was um and i read the play and i thought like this is i couldn't believe that half this stuff was true um, now it was a dramatized version of it but i couldn't believe this character got away with what he got away with yeah. so i thought it was an extraordinary play i kind of quickly became obsessed with it um i started working with gary realized that we had formed some sort of professional working relationship and that it wasn't going to be going away anytime soon. Um, We made this deal. The Shakespeare's came along. And like the reason we did it was because we did the Shakespeare's years ago. And we knew that we weren't finished. We had to go back and do some more. So there were other Shakespeare plays that we had tossed around in terms of uh, possibly doing. And um, Richard III was one of them. And it wasn't that we did it because we thought it would be relevant. If anything, we were trying to like not draw those, you know. Um, and yet, it, yet it's completely on the money. Absolutely, yeah. you can't avoid it. No, but it's like all the classics. I mean, you know, I, you know, somebody can get frustrated with with you know this idea that new theatre has to be relevant or new plays mm. have to be re- relevant, and it's kind of why the classics are there. They're always it? relevant. 
Yeah, exactly. You don't have to make them relevant. No, it's just about yeah. finding new things in them or, or, or finding new ways of interpreting them. Now, you had seen, you know, that Anthony Sher, and you've probably seen other people do Richard III as well. And even, you know, it was done so often and so well, it be, it, there's a kind of a comedy Richard III as well. And, you know, it's yeah. a, everybody thinks they can do Richard III as yeah. a kind of a party piece or something. Sure. Um, did you think long and hard about that aspect of it that you were going to have to... You know, play someone with it with a with a disability, and with yeah. you know that you know. Did you think about you know how much? Just tell me a little bit about the whole devising the way that you would move on the stage, how you would walk, how you would. Um, I don't know because uh, once you decided that, you were stuck with that for a long time, weren't you? Ne ne you're never stuck with anything in a druid rehearsal room. <laughs> I, I really mean that. Like yeah. uh, things happen quite late sometimes in a druid rehearsal room, um, so. I'd been working, I, I knew for a year that I was definitely going to play this part. We decided on it a year ago. So I'd spent a year really properly researching it, really learning the lines, even though I'd been kind of working on it for 13 years. But for months and months and months, I had fellow actors and friends asking me, how am I going to play it? Mm. And I, I knew that I was like, I'm not going to, I've loads of ideas, but I'm not going to decide until we go into the room, mm. until we see, like for me, acting is, Acting is about reacting and you're reacting not only to the other actor, you're also reacting to the audience, you're reacting to the production, you're reacting to the costumes, to whatever design the designers have come up with. I was very lucky in that production to be able to kind of be part of that process. Yeah, I was going to ask you because, you know, he's dressed like a rock star. Yeah. You know, it's leather and studs. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're playing Richard III as a rock star, then you're already down the road of this, people are going to be attracted to this guy. I guess so, yeah. No matter, no matter how bad he is. Yeah, no, I'm, I I wouldn't be conscious of that at all. Yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be my way of thinking. Um, I like, I like being given problems as an actor that I have to work around. Yeah. Um, I don't like going in, going in and saying, this is how I'm going to play it. Because yeah. I just think you're stuck then. I don't, yeah. I, 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 I have no idea a lot of the time. I've loads of ideas, but I, I certainly nothing that sticks. I, I kind of like been. I always loved it. I always love, and Gary's very good at this. I always love getting the direction that I saw, didn't see coming, that kind of came from left field. You follow that to the point where it either fails or it works, and whether it fails or works, if it works, great. If it fails, you learn something from it. You've talked earlier about acting being a job, which of course it is, right? No, but it's not a job like every other job at the same time. And when you've when you've embodied Richard III in that way, is there any danger, this might be a ridiculous question, but is there any danger of some of that rubbing off on your real life, you know? Do you, do, did you seduce yourself? Did you start to think, I kind of like being Richard III here? I think every part leaves a little, it leaves itself behind yeah. on you. You don't want too much of him left behind. Yeah, do you know what was really funny with that? Well, I, I started to feel um, very good about myself. Yeah, but you're not enough. as bad as Richard III. Do you? No, no, it's funny. It, 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 I suppose it happens. It happens in ways. It happens in ways that you can never predict. Yeah. Um, uh, doing some of the Tom Murphy stuff got a lot of it got a lot of frustration and anger out of me that I didn't realise was there. But it also made me feel very confident about myself, and it it certainly changed me. There's there's certain plays that or you know pieces of work that come along that that they do leave a mark and they change you and you kind of go, I'm going to continue on with this feeling uh, or this little change. Um, 
yeah, to, yeah, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, and I kind of, um, I'm very critical about my own work. Mm. I, I find it really, really hard to take a compliment, but I was very proud of that. And I think if if Richard taught me anything, it was to kind of, uh, to enjoy, enjoy my life a little bit. So I really enjoyed the time, as exhausting as it was, and I, I wouldn't take it back. Well, but it was. Uh, I know you don't like compliments, but it was an amazing performance. It really was. No. Your next choice. Oh, let's just, we, we skipped a couple. Uh, what about Bill Withers, eh? Fantastic. Kissing My Love, Bill Withers, the choice of Aaron Monaghan, who's with me in studio. Now, uh, we've gone through Richard the Third. now I'm going to put you through Beckett, if oh, you don't goodness. mind, if you don't mind. Um, because I saw you in Waiting for Godot, uh -huh. and, man, it was also, it was amazing. <laughs> Everybody in it, I mean, it was an extraordinary thing, really. Yeah, it was um, fun. Now, Again, that's something a lot of people who maybe haven't seen Beckett or seen Waiting for Godot, they'll have heard of it and they might think, mm, I'm not sure about that, you know, yeah. the play where nothing I happens agree. twice <laughs> and all the rest of it, you know. And yet you guys did it in such a way that it was really funny. Yeah. I mean, very funny. Yeah. Um, as well as everything else, <laughs> without losing the meaning of the thing, whatever, sure. whatever that meaning may be, but, it, you know... Um, how did you, how did you kind of, what was the first meeting like about that? You know, did somebody say, let's not forget Laurel and Hardy in this, you know, let's, let's yeah. remember, remember. And that was Beckett's instruction to a lot of actors was, these are jokes. Yeah, this is yeah, funny. absolutely. He wanted Buster Keaton in yeah. it, apparently, and, yeah. and Marlon Brando, apparently, Brando as well. was yeah. lined up for, as, as I think. Yeah. Best Another great thing. physical yeah. actor as well, yeah. yeah. Um, we were only ever doing it for the, for the, purpose of working together we weren't doing it to create another waiting for Godot yeah. so we didn't realise how serious a thing that was until we got into the room it was when we got in we realised that oh no we have to you know pay this due diligence and it's it's a very tricky play and uh, I suppose the, the th I, I think because well certainly for me because I felt we were too young to do it we had to find some other way in mm -hmm. and we decided that we were going to follow his letter, his uh, instructions to the letter, so the stage directions. So we were, we knew that beats were, we decided that beats were three seconds long, pauses were five seconds long, and silences were ten seconds long, and long silences were even longer. Yeah. So we were, you know, rigorous and um, about that. It was like arithmetic. And his stage directions were, he tells you how many steps to take, um, what direction to go in. So the more we kind of did that, the more we realised that it, it, it is Laurel and Hardy. And without making it Laurel and Hardy, we we allowed that kind of in. Well, you did the bowler hat routine yeah. at one point, which is great to see. Yeah, it's fantastic. But and like, people, you can't and take people, credit for and, that. And people recognise that as well. Of course, great, yeah. You know? But again, you, like, they're, they're, I, I find it really hard to take credit for any of that because Beckett has told you exactly what to do. He's told he's told Gogo to, to take the hat in the right hand take off his hat and his left hand, put one on. Like he, he literally gives you the, the blueprints for it. Yeah. Um, and I suppose when you kind of uh, take away the, I don't know, the intellectualism or the academia away from it, uh, that, you know, Beckett can often get shrouded in this and you're going to go, oh, I get this. I grew up watching Laurel and Hardy yeah. in the 80s. My dad used to fall off his chair yeah. watching this stuff. Um, so it was a great thing for me and Marty to find a way in yeah. to kind of go, oh, we get this. Yeah. Um, so it was a great thing for us to latch on to, but we didn't really expect it to go anywhere. Um, 
I only ever thought I'd be doing it for two weeks. And I, I remember sitting on the stone one night, halfway through the show, show going, I, th I think this is me for the next 30 years. Like, <laughs> whether I, and I wasn't happy about that. Like, yeah. it was, whether I like it or not, we're going to be we're going to be doing this again. Um, and you have to, I suppose, you know, like a lot of the great successes, you don't mean them to be successful. It was only ever a, a pet project for us. I think Gary was. You, you mentioned there how specific you were about things like timing, about beats, and all the rest yeah. of it. But when you're when you're in a production like that and it's clearly going well, and you're getting all the laughs, mm. and the audience are clearly loving it. Do you enjoy it when you're up there? Do you enjoy a word that comes into your head? Are you having a ball up there? Are you too yeah. busy doing your job? Um, no, I'm not thinking. Like yeah. the, uh, I know I talked earlier about like being very uncomfortable of talking to people and mm. in crowds and stuff, um, and that thing of going through the warm up so your head isn't anywhere. Mm. But, and your body's just reacting. The most comfortable I've ever felt, the most confident and most assured I've ever felt is on stage. Mm. Like there is something, I've talked about this before, like you're fully uh, sensorially aware and you find, it's kind of hard to explain without um, sounding supernatural about it, but you're fully present in your body. Mm. You're fully present on stage, but you also feel that there's a part of you up in the lights, up in the flies, looking down. There's a party at the back of the stalls and you're able to watch this. So mm. you're, I don't know, Marina Carr talks about all these different kind of levels of awareness and uh, levels of being. And I can't quite understand what she means, but that's the closest. Mm. Uh, whenever I've talked to her about that, that's the closest I get to understanding. It's a, it's a whole body sense of assurance and knowing and, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, I can't really describe it. You are enjoying it, yeah. Um, that's the closest I can get to describe because, it. Because, you know, there's, there are moments in that play where the audience is brought in. Mm. You're playing to the crowd. Oh, very much so, Do you know so, what yeah. I mean? You're actually playing to the audience. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it refers to its own theatricality yeah. and the fact that it's playing in a theatre space a lot yeah. of the time. There was a lovely thing that happened when we were doing Richard III a couple of uh, months ago. Um any experience you do on stage, you can learn from it. And again, particularly the worst performances. Um, I remember, you know, big it starts out with a monologue and the big thing for me was always to connect with mm. the audience, to look them in the eye and say, now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer, summer by the son of York. Um, and I remember going out on stage and seeing in a matinee that this family had brought uh, three kids in and they were sitting on their laps and I think the kids, uh, the youngest was about two and a half and the eldest was about seven. And I'm going to go there into a three hour Shakespeare production. Mm. And I thought, first of all, the kids are going to get restless. They're going to leave halfway through. They're going to get bored. And I remember being really frightened about this. Not frightened, but kind of going, I have to find some way of communicating this to the other actors before, you know, the third scene, which is the first time I got off stage. Um, but I resolved halfway through it. I remember kind of thinking, whatever they don't get in terms of the words, they we will be able... I remember just thinking, I'm going to have to turn around this performance a little bit and hopefully be able to communicate something to these kids and keep them entertained and keep them hooked in terms of tone, in terms of physicality, in terms of gesture. Mm. Um, it was a huge lesson for me. Those kids stayed for all wow. three hours. And I thought, like... 
amazing parents. I was thinking, God, what were these parents thinking, bringing mm. these kids to such a, and a very violent production as well, of a very violent play. Um, but I ate my words and I was kind of going, those kids came away. They stood, they sat there for three hours and didn't flinch. And is it, is it cool for an actor to do that in a sense? Because your director, if the director's there that night thinking, what's he doing here? Hang on a minute. Yeah. Now. He's, 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 he's doing something different tonight and I'm not sure about this. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I did anything that was too different. I suppose I was just more conscious yeah. of mm. what I was communicating, I suppose. And I'm sure the other actors as well. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of doing the same thing every night on stage because, again, acting to me is reacting. And I mean that in a real sense. I know it's pretense. Mm. We spend four or five weeks uh, working in an environment where you're creating an artifice and you're setting up the rules of the world so you know this can happen and that can't happen. So you're set up and you're setting up all these boundaries. But the one thing that changes every night is the audience. And you are a little bit different as an actor, as are all the other actors, than you were yesterday. Mm. You might be a little bit more tired. You might be a little bit more cranky. Uh, you might be a little bit, you know, less emotional. You mightn't have access to all those things that you had. And if there's a thing that you mentioned about like getting laughs and stuff like that I'm really wary of getting laughs and I'm particularly wary of getting a laugh one night and trying to chase it the next night I know night. that's it it's gone yeah. so so you know I suppose it's like <laughs> you know you've got a good line coming up oh absolutely yeah. and the worst thing you can do is yeah. be aware of that because you're kind of like there's a nudge and a wink to the audience about wait you see this laugh now um, so anything that kind of becomes self aware is dead yeah. so for me you know I have everything I do has to be not different every night, but it has to, it has to be uh, provoked, or at least attempt to be provoked from uh, a real provocation, from a real reaction in the other actor. It's not like the difference in you're you're doing something completely different in the scene. For me, it's minimal. Mm. Uh, the idea of doing Godo, we did it for three years over the course of three years, and by the end of the third year, for me anyway, the show had completely evolved. Um, and that's okay. I think I think what one of the other actors was doing might have been exactly the same f from day dot mm. to the last time we did it. But for me, my my understanding of the play completely changed, and it changed on a nightly basis. I think I, sometimes I went, I know what this play is about now, and then I might completely turn around the next time and go, Oh my god, I heard that! Every time we did that show, we heard a different line that completely threw the play. Yeah. Out of whack. I remember seeing Tommy Tierney, who, who I'm a huge fan of. He did. I, I saw the same show four times over the course of a year, and he was talking about the same things, but using ex completely different jokes. So the themes of the show and the things he were talking about were exactly the same, yeah. but the jokes are completely different. And I'm kind of going. I'm interested in that. And then other comedians. The most disappointing thing I ever saw. Um, but inspiring at the same time was seeing one comedian two nights in a row deliver exactly the same material in exactly the same way. So I was kind of going, oh my God, the illusion was broken for me. That off the cuff remark that I yeah. thought was so off the cuff wasn't at all. It was quite studied. And I think for me, it's both of them. You're, you're learning, you're, you're creating something and you're rehearsing it to within an inch of its life but that there is the potential to kind of go somewhere live with it and kind of abandon all that. And, you know, somewhere between both those things, that's what acting is for me. Incredible. Incredible stuff, really. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in awe of anybody can walk out on a stage and, 
and do that, you know, without, say, a guitar that I stand behind and sing <laughs> songs. You know what I mean? When you're not sure. entirely sure what's going to happen. You have so much just, to, you really you know. do. You have so much to, to work off. Yeah. Music. Mm. Um, you've got Tammy on the list. Got Tammy, got a bit of George Jones. Yeah, well, we better start getting a, we start better start being more selective now as we go on. What okay. do you want to hear next? Uh, oh, we what go, do you definitely want to hear? I definitely want to hear George Jones for the crack. Yes, so do I. Yeah. The Grand Tour. Step right up. Tommy Wynette there and before that George Jones the choices of uh, Aaron Monaghan who's with me in studio tonight picking all the tracks and talking about Shakespeare and Beckett and all the rest the one thing that I haven't asked you about uh, Aaron is uh, is the screen you know you've done a yeah. lot of TV and a lot of movies as well mm. I, I guess what happens is when you're when you become known for doing big parts like Richard III and you know, working in, in Gatto and in America and all the rest of it. You know, maybe the I, I I I might might start to think that the movie thing isn't where you're really at, and yet you've done quite a bit of that. Yeah. How do you? I, f- I mean, is that is that like a is that a is that a sideline? Is that a is that a mm, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, it's funny. I've I've always looked at it as a as a sideline. Yeah. Um, uh, I keep on. To, to do film and TV, you have to stop doing theatre. The, like, the amount yeah. of work you have to do to do a show uh, is, it just, it's all-consuming. Um, and film can happen very, very quickly. So if, if you're to take off three months yeah. to, do, uh, to leave yourself available to do a film, you know, you might get an audition and then three weeks later, suddenly it's greenlit and, and it's either happening or it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, We've spent three months unemployed, you know, and Gary Hine comes along and offers you a lovely juicy part in Druid sure. with, yeah. you know, some of the best actors in the country. So I've, I've, I've always had to be seduced into not working in theatre in order to do it. And I, I suppose it went hand in hand with this kind of not really respecting the work, certainly in my er- early career, of not really respecting the craft of filmmaking. Because mm-hmm. um, it was only ever, like, available to do a day or two and it's such a different world in it's it's miles apart I think you know you, you get picked up in the morning in a very nice car and somebody greets you and you know they take you to uh, a trailer and they you know you very soon learn that they're actually looking after your costume uh, with, with <laughs> you know instead of you they're holding an umbrella over your costume but you are looked after mm. and they pay you more money than you get mm. paid you know so I I used to watch a lot of people who didn't work quite as rigorously as I was used to working in theatre. And I found it, uh, and I'm talking about actors here, I'm not talking about crew, who would get pulled out of bed and shoved into a car and stood in front of a camera and somebody puts makeup on them and somebody else gets them a coffee and somebody else feeds them. And I'm kind of going, this this isn't work at all. And there's a mm. lot of... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I suppose this is my attitude of maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, kind of going there's a lot of prima donnas in this mm. um, business I don't think that anymore yeah. but I find it really hard to kind of marry that perception with going in and pouring your heart and soul onto stage production like you know seven eight times a week for sure. eight hours while you're you know away in America missing your family and stuff like that Um so I find it really difficult and I also kind of go, oh, if you don't get it in the first take, you can get it in the second. Now, there's a huge amount of pressure in yeah. that as well. But, you know, if you can't cry, somebody comes up and squirts some stuff in your eyes and make you cry. And yeah. uh, I don't know, there's something that just I couldn't quite marry it. And in the last couple of years, like the last five, six years, I decided to do a lot more of it. Um, 
I don't know, I just kind of decided to move away from theatre for a while uh, to challenge myself a little bit more in terms of the TV well, it films. it depends on that. Depends what it is, doesn't exactly, it? You know, yeah. I mean, some of the there's some incredible stuff, as we all know, now have been made for Netflix. And, That's you know, right. Yeah. Some really great, great stuff. But, but I've begun to understand that it is a craft. Yeah. It's a craft, just like theatre is a craft, yeah. and I certainly haven't given it enough respect. Yeah. Um, because I'm very proud of a lot of the theatre work that I've done. I'm not proud of all of it, but you know, and be fairly critical of it. But when I go home and talk to people who I grew up with in Cavan, and I explain to them what I'm doing. They look at me with two heads if I say I've just played Richard the Third in the National Theatre for six weeks and yeah. whatever. They don't get it, and that's no disrespect to them. It's just not in their periphery. I remember doing I had a really really small part in Love Hate, and I had a really really small part in some other thing that went out around the same time as Love Hate, and I got in a bus to Cavan one day. Uh, I've been doing theatre for about I don't know eight or nine years, and like busting my ass doing a lot of good work it's a lot of stuff that I was really really proud of and I was going home and it was around Christmas time and these people that I'd served in the pub that I knew since I was kids uh, since I was a kid um, and they just I got in the they were damn near clapping because they'd seen me on Love Hate playing a tiny part and they'd seen me the next week on a different TV show and it was like I'd made it and I wanted to kind of say to them that's that's about five days work for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, c I could nearly boil down into the amount of hours I spent working on that. Um, and that was something that I did while I was on stage that night, you know. Um, so I, I, I find that really, really hard to balance, you know, the amount of time that and the amount of work. You know, I do, you know, some of the work that, you know, I was doing The Foreigner um, uh, was Jackie Chan film and it was a really great experience. And then we had to do this fight scene and the fight scene took a week to do. And it was just exhausting. It was extraordinarily exhausting to the point where I never wanted to be an actor again by the end of it. Um, where a guy is kind of like throwing you over your shoulder, so much pressure to get like six shots out instead of five shots. Um, so it is exhausting. You know, it's something I've kind of come around. I have to, I have to respect the art of film and TV making, but um, I do now. I didn't. I didn't originally, so maybe I'll devote myself a bit more to it in the future. Now, um, just before I let you go, um, you mentioned Live and Dread, theatre company you set up in yeah. Cavan 15 years 15 ago. 15 years, yeah. But you're still in action, so so what is yeah. it you're about to do? We're about to do uh, a new play. I've taken over as artistic director in the last year, so we're about to do, not a new play, uh, a revival of a play that I fell in love with years ago called Trad by Mark Doherty. Yeah. Um, uh brother of David O'Doherty yeah. and uh, it's about a 100 year old man and his father um, <laughs> I mean that's that's the premise of it you know, who, got, I'll go to see that who discovers it. yeah <laughs> it's, it's beautiful play it's just funny um, yeah. It's I tried to describe it I don't know if Mark would like this analogy but like it's kind of like Waiting for Godot meets Father Ted um, I'd go to see that. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, he discovers he's a he's a seventy year old son out there, and they set out in the quest. The father has one leg, and the and the son has one arm. I mean, uh, that's, but between the two of them, yeah, yeah, they they get there hopefully. Are you in it? I'm not in it. I'm going to direct this one. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, we're in the in the process of casting it. So we're we're going to take a little tour around the country, Cavan and Dunleary and Navan. Uh, Where else is there? Uh, Galway and Peacock. That's it. Terrific. Yeah. And this, you're also narrating Dave Fennessy's Conquest of the Useless in New Music Dublin at the end of this month.
Yeah. Uh, so your last choice, Aaron, musically, is choice. Sia. Sia. So you're not entirely stuck in a country and western uh, no. bubble. No, I, I, have a, I have a very cool wife who kind of has dragged me into the 21st century. Um, kind of reluctantly, she's kind of made me listen to Elbow and Hosier and stuff like that, which I actually like. Um, and Sia, um, if this is the version that we're thinking, it's it's uh, this acoustic was, version, yeah. Yeah, this was the this was our first dance at our wedding. Ah. I think it's the one that I knew. I knew I was in trouble. I was like, ah, oh, there's no getting away from this girl. I think I think I like her. Um, uh, well, I hope I, you were thinking that before the last dance of the wedding. No, first no, dance this is wedding, this is about yeah. this is about seven years ago, and I went, oh no. <laughs> oh no, this this song was playing in the car when I picked her up one night, and I went, yeah, that's that's it. I think we'll get out of this one. There you go. Aaron, thanks a million for coming Such in. Such a pleasure. Thanks it's really me. great. And uh, as I say, I'm a huge admirer of what you what you do on the stage. So it's great to have you in. Thanks. Aaron Monan, thanks a million. Here's Sia. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.